Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, and Dave Ansell. Let's welcome to our studio Dr. Dave to find out what's new in the land of science. Good, Good evening, evening. Is there anything startling? There was something exciting the other night about in, up in the universe, isn't there? Oh, there's been a couple of things. Um, the one I wanted to talk about was possibly a, a subtle one. Yeah. Um, that astronomers have found water on the, on a planet outside of our solar system. Wow. This is 63 light years away, which is about 600 million million kilometres. So a fair fair distance. And the really scary thing is how they managed to do it. Now, yeah, just thinking that. The problem is that a star, that you've got a planet going around a star, and in fact this planet is on a really, really close orbit. It orbits around its star every two, just over two days. So it's really, really close to the star. And the problem is the star is billions and billions and billions of times brighter than this planet. So how on earth can you tell it's there? What they did was they managed to find a planet which went behind the star once every orbit. And they've looked very closely at its spectrum. This is like all the different colours of the rainbow in the star. And noticed how it changed as the planet orbited it. And looked at the difference between when the planet was, when you, the planet was there and when it was behind the star. You mm. can't actually see it going behind, but you mm. can tell it's gone behind because of the change in brightness of the star. And they looked at the two differences, subtracted the two, and they got the colours of light which the planet itself was emitting. Um, this was all in the infrared light because the planet's really quite warm. It's been like 930 degrees centigrade and 600. 50 degrees centigrade in the cool part, part. So it's pretty warm. It's glowing away nicely like a lump of iron would do at that temperature. They're just looking at these light, this light. The, the weird thing was, was they looked for water on the same planet four or five years ago and mm. they couldn't find any. Oh. And when they came, came back to it and had another look for a bit longer, they suddenly discovered there was lots, lots of water there. And what they think is happening is that this planet is really near to the, uh, the sun, its sun. It's really hot and you get really big storms there. And sometimes they're lifting up water into the upper atmosphere that you can see. So at the moment, there's obviously a big storm going on, which is swirling water vapour up at the top of the atmosphere. But most of the time, it sort of sinks down. The other time they looked, it had sunk down and they couldn't see it. So it's just a fascinating way you can use so little information to find out so much about a planet billions and billions of um, kilometres away. Just amazing. Send Jim up from Star Trek. He'll sort it out. Now then, uh, we have lots of questions here. Um, Andrew in Cambridge has asked, Dr. Dave, how does superglue work? Well, superglue is uh, various different chemicals on them. All of them, they're all called cyanoacrylates. Um, these are little molecules um, with some carbons and nitrogens and oxygen in them. And normally they'll sit there on their own, bimbling around perfectly happily. But if they, you get a very small amount of water 
added to them and there's enough water moisture in the air lots of water just on dry skin then this will trigger a reaction which makes these little molecules all glue together so one sticks to another one sticks to another one sticks to another one sticks to another one into a big chain and forms what's called a polymer that just means lots of mers mm. lots of monomers yes. so you just get a big long chain yeah. and all these chains kind of all tangle together and form a solid lump and because superglue is so runny to start with, it kind of runs into all the gap, all the lumps and bumps in the material you, the two yeah. materials you're sticking together, um, and gets very close to it. And when two objects are incredibly close together, and they tend to be attracted to one another, and so the superglue will stick to both sides, and it's now a solid lump, so it sticks things together. Mm. All right, well, thank you very much for that. I think that's answered that one. Now, uh, one here that came in from Mark the Storman, who said, I've been reading on the internet, um, we will have an extra second added to 2008 due to the Earth's atomic clock needing updating. And the modern commerce sat-nav needs this to happen because they rely on specific timing for the satellites, i.e. a fraction of a section wrong on a sat-nav satellite and it could put you out of position by 30 metres as opposed to the usual 30 centimetres accuracy. I think I understand why sat-navs need to be accurate as they beam signals, etc., to measure position. But can your scientist, Chapet or Chappy, explain why the Earth slowing down should change time? Um, time can get warped and travel pass at different speeds if you're in different places, if you're moving at different speeds. If you're sitting down on Earth, time goes ever so slightly slower than it would be if you are up outside the Earth. The higher, further away you are from a big mass, the faster time goes. Mm. But the real thing we're talking about with this is not, nothing to do with Einstein or Newton or whatever. It's basically the Earth is slowing down and people like uh, midday to be when the, the sun is above above our heads. Yeah. And because the Earth is slowing down, if, if a day continues to be exactly 24 hours and the Earth slows down, then the Earth doesn't quite get all the way round in each, 24, in each what we call a day, and it slowly slows down and slows down, and so it gets behind and behind and behind. Every few years, they actually have to put an extra second so as midday is when the sun is directly above um, Greenwich. Mm. Um, the actual effects that would happen if you didn't do this, it would basically mean that all the time zones would slightly warp and the centre of all the time zones would no longer be over Greenwich. It would be over somewhere else in London or if you left it long enough, it would slowly move into France or whatever. Basically, the, the place where the sun is midday, on average, directly overhead at midday, would no longer be in Greenwich and it would slowly move because the Earth is no longer synced up with time anymore. There is actually a big movement to try and stop, get rid of all these leap seconds mm. um, for the actual time which scientists use and things like sat-navs use mm. because it's the right pain to deal with because you've got to write special computer code which knows when these leap seconds are coming and they're, they're not actually that predictable. So slow, what there's a lot of people wanting to do is have two different sets at two different times, one of them which is kind of the standard time which scientists use and anyone who's writing computer programs use, and yeah. another one which um, is the, way, the one which everyday people use, <laughs> which, which is to do with where the sun is in the sky. Uh-huh. So you just have a difference between the two which slowly changes, and it will just make life a lot easier if they did that. Because otherwise, if you're trying to work out how many seconds it's been since you took a picture of a star 20 years ago, it's the right pain because you've got to include all of the, these leap seconds all over the place and you've got to remember, make, be sure that you've added them in last time and took them out in the right order. What would you prefer to have, Dave, as a scientist? Um, definitely if I was doing any 
calculations or anything. It'd be a lot easier if ty- just every you had a big number which was just the number of seconds since a certain date, and you just kept adding them on because then if you want to know the difference in two times, you just subtract two numbers, and it's really easy. Otherwise, life gets difficult. Dealing with time is a pain. <laughs> Yeah, makes sense to me. Now then, um, Tesco Tom has says, how do they make fishing line so fine, Dave? I don't have any direct knowledge of how to make fishing line. I've never been to a factory. I mean, to be honest, actually, fishing line is quite thick compared to other things which they spin from molten plastics. Mm. I mean, things like the fibres you make clothes out of, the fibres my fleece is made out of, Mm. they're polyester, which Mm. is being reacted together and then sort of squirted out through very, very fine holes, which produces very thin fibres. I think probably the way they make it gets a load of molten plastic of some form. Exactly how you get that will depend on the plastic you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, and then squirt it through a small hole. And then the, f- the fibre which comes out will be the size of the hole. And you just put it on a reel and get it long enough to let it dry out and solidify. And then you just wind it onto a reel and you have a line. Basically like those little kits. I, I don't know if you remember them. We had plasticines type stuff and squirted them through little holes and produced long kind of snake-like shape. Things. We love plasticine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Dave. Now then, Mike has sent an email in. How big is the black hole at the centre of the galaxy and how long before it swallows up our sun? And, he goes on to ask Dave, um, do we know what the mass of this object is compared with the total mass of the galaxy? Ooh, good one for you, Dave. Very good question. Okay, the way they work out how heavy things like black holes are is by looking at the orbits of a star. Uh-huh. Um, basically, the more mass if, for something which is orbiting at a certain distance away from from any object, if it's a black hole, a normal star, the Earth, the Moon, whatever. If you look at how far there's a relationship between how far away it is and how long it takes to orbit. So, if the more massive it is, the quicker it will get round for the same. The quicker the orbit is for the right. same radius. Yeah. So, basically, they've looked at all the stars around the centre of the galaxy and looked at how they're orbiting, and. From that, the, and knowing how much, how much they all weigh, from, from that, there's a big, there must be a big mass sitting at the centre, which is causing all these stars to whip round very quickly, much mm. quicker than they would do otherwise, and orbit around the centre of the galaxy. And they reckon that the mass of this black hole is somewhere between 3.2 and 4 million times the mass of the sun. So quite a hefty object, really. So it could swallow up the sun, then, in that case? It, it could certainly swallow up the sun if the sun was in the right place. It's a, the thing is, it's actually quite small. The black hole itself is only about the tenth of the orbit between... of the tenth of the radius of the Earth's orbit. So it probably would all sit within Mercury's orbit um, in the solar system. It will be swallowing matter very slowly. The thing is that... Um, I don't know if you've ever played with a roundabout... played on a roundabout when you are a kid... Yes. If, if, you, if you've got something spinning and the galaxy is spinning, if yeah. you try and climb into the centre of that roundabout, the roundabout spins faster and faster and faster. Uh-huh. Um, it's called that preservation, conservation angular momentum. Um, and basically, if stars try and move closer to this black hole, they're going to spin faster and faster and faster until eventually they're spinning fast enough to orbit. So although so for, for a star to actually fall into the black hole, it's, it's got to lose all of its movement energy. It's got to lose all of its angular momentum. Um, and you could do this by if you had two stars orbiting um, in opposite directions, they crashed into each other, exactly stopped, then fell straight towards the black hole. Then they could fall in. But normally it's almost impossible to lose all of that energy, so they'd almost inevitably just slightly miss on each orbit. And so unless there's something which slows them down, they're not actually going to get pulled in until they get very, very, very close. 
So we're mi- hundreds of millions of light, definitely hundreds of thousands of light years, I think hundreds of millions of light years out from the centre of the um, galaxy, mm. tens of millions of light years out from the centre of the galaxy. So I don't think, um, definitely no time soon, unless something very strange happened to the sun's um, orbit around the galaxy, we're going to get anywhere near the galactic centre for billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years. So nothing to worry about in our lifetimes. Um, now then, Mick has sent a question in. He says, Dr Dave, I watched the film Perfect Storm. Oh, is that with um, George Clooney in? I think it is. Um, is it possible for 100-foot waves to be generated and how do they react at sea? There are a couple of ways you can get a 100-foot wave. Um, the one which probably people are most used to are tsunamis. These are big waves created by earthquakes. Basically, you have an earthquake with one bit of the ocean floor trying to move downwards and the other bit trying to move upwards, and all of a sudden they jump. Mm. And all of a sudden you've got a huge amount of water lifted by a couple of metres on one side and dropped by a couple of metres on the other side, and you've essentially just made yourself a wave. Um, and these will travel very fast across the ocean floor. And when they reach the coast, their height will build up and up and up. Actually, in the middle of the ocean, they're quite small. They can only be a, a foot or two high. They're just moving very, very quickly. And ships wouldn't notice them. Um, possibly feel a bit of a jolt, but that's all. Um, but when they reach the coast, they can get very, very big, easily 30, 100 feet high. Mm. Um, but I think the waves he's thinking of, you get freak, freak waves mm. in really big storms. These normally occur when you've got more, a load of waves coming from lots of different directions and all adding up. and forming. A, so you've got lots of waves coming from the north, south, east and west, all kind of jumbling up and forming a very messy, choppy sea. And if you happen to get lots of waves all kind of converging onto one point... Um, then they can kind of collide with each other and build up into one massive wave. It only tends to last a few seconds, maybe a few tens of seconds. Mm. But you, there are definitely documented cases of huge waves. Uh, I think it's sort of been 26 metres, nearly 100 feet, ones crashing into oil rigs, 30-metre ones wiping out ships. Um, they think a lot of ships which are lost in the middle of oceans could be due to these freak waves. Um, there have definitely been some big passenger ships which have been hit and um, one of them got almost sunk by in the Southern Ocean another one got hit and just about survived and sort of managed to limp into port but yes there's definitely evidence you can get waves that high they don't last for a very long time but they do occur Thank you very much If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist our regular roundup of the world's best science Each week we take a look at the latest science news talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast Martin Lowestoff says, Dr. Dave, since last night my wireless has gone very distorted, it sounds terrible. Is it because my radio's packing in or have other people got the same problems? Why would radio distort, Dave? It depends what kind of radio you're talking about. Basically, you've, uh, radio works by you've got um, a transmitter. Um, you send a big electric current up and down, um, which creates things with electromagnetic waves, also radio waves, the same sort of thing as light. And then these travel out from the transmitter. And then you have another aerial. You get a little current running up and down that aerial, which you can then have sensitive detectors in the radio to work out what's going on. Mm. Um, There's all sorts of things which can um, distort radio. Um, And 
if you've got a normal AM thing, it normally comes over as a hiss. So if anything's transmitting radio waves itself, mm. um, then you can get lots of hiss on things. So if you're if any electronic electrical equipment um, is transmitting lots of radio waves, motors are notorious for it. Then they can produce, they can be their own radio transmitters and they interfere with the radio transmitter you had to start with. Mm-hmm. Depending on what kind of radio system you're using, um, how that manifests itself can be different. If you've got FM, they tend to it tends to work. It sounds very, very clear until all of a sudden it sort of fails to work anymore um, or it suddenly it degrades very quickly and digital radio is even worse for that. There could be interference from something which is transmitting itself or it mm. could be something to do with a reflection, which is or if you have a reflection which exactly cancels out the radio waves from your radio station, then you won't be able to hear it either. Or oh, it could be tuning even, Pat, couldn't it, as well? So sometimes, um, you know... Sometimes when people are doing um, maintenance on transmitters, they turn the power down because mm. the poor guys who are climbing up and down the aerials don't like... They prefer to have lower voltages, which are less likely to kill them. Scary stuff. Now it's time to go to the phones and we're very pleased to welcome onto the show, as always, um, a man who asks the most interesting questions and he's fascinating and lovely with it. Good evening to Tony. Hello, my darling. Hello, my darling. Uh, I've got a little query for Doc about warming, global warming. Yeah. Will eventually unfreeze methane if it goes on. Yeah. Um, how long do you think we'll take to do it? And do you think it ever would do it? Yeah, I think what you're talking about is methane clathrates. Um, one that's, yeah, that's right, the yeah. one that's in the sea. Yeah, this is where um, deep in the oceans, under high pressures, uh-huh. um, you can get ice form, you can get a structure where you have something, something a bit like ice, but because ice has got quite a sort of gappy structure, there's quite a lot of space in it, and you get methane locked inside this ice structure. Um, and they tend to form where at the bottom of the ocean, sort of in the sediments, where you've got something which is rotting and producing methane, and then it gets trapped inside the water because of the high pressures, and it will sit there for thousands of years. The thing is, when it heats up, it can start to melt, and the problem is that methane is a um, greenhouse gas, which is about 200 times more powerful than carbon dioxide, the equivalent amount of carbon dioxide. So if these start melting, then it's going to increase the rate of the um, greenhouse effect kicking in um i think there is some evidence that there are more of them going off than there used to be it's quite hard to tell because you've always got to be there at the time to actually because what you tend to have, have have is a little earthquake or sort of a little landslide at the bottom of the ocean which kind of reduces the pressure on one of these and now it's warm enough for it to melt um all this gas can suddenly escape when you get the ocean bubbling People think that this might be that, that you also got these at the last climate optimum, which was around about a thousand AD, um, when the Vikings were rowing around in Greenland and living in Greenland, and they had lots of stories of maelstroms where the ocean would go very oily and kind of stru- very strange and choppy, and ships would get lost in it and sink in it, and flames would go out and things. Um, and because if you have an ocean full of bubbles, the ocean now isn't as dense as it used to be. So your boat, which was um, light enough to float on normal water, all of a sudden it's not light enough to float on this bubbly water and it can sink. So there's some evidence that they were going off during the last climate um, optimum. And I think there is some evidence that they are starting to um, melt now. Whether it's enough to have a big effect on our climate yet, I haven't seen any evidence for. But it could definitely be quite soon. Tony, thank you very much indeed. That's right. If I don't see you before, happy Christmas. Um, Happy happy Christmas Christmas to you. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
Right, one here from John who says, Dr. Dave, what actually triggers hibernation in some animals? Talking of things that I don't know, I'm afraid <laughs> I think that falls into that category. Does I it? don't know, I'm afraid, John. Um, I th- I th- you probably have to ask Chris or Helen or someone with a more biological background. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I think uh, lots of um, biorhythms are triggered by all sorts of things. I mean, our, we have um, things which are triggered by how long days are. I mean, lots of birds and things will start singing when day lengths get to certain lengths. Mm. Others will do it by what the temperature is. Mm. I wouldn't even be sure that it was the same for all animals because some animals, animals and plants trigger what they're going to do by day length others by what the temperature is doing others by some complicated mixture of the two and actually this can be very important to an animal if the climate's changing yeah absolutely because if you're away if you're hibernating and you're asleep and you're if you're you're working on the day length or you're a plant which only starts to sprout up when the day length gets longer than a certain amount but the world's a bit warmer now and there was actually a a month when you could have been growing away frantically and everyone else has been doing it then you're going to not you're not going to be able to grow early enough and you're going to get shaded out mm. so. or um yeah like crocuses you know that come up on lawns and things and then somebody comes along with the mower because they think they ought to cut the grass now rick in whittam has called in to ask you dave why are all the planets round good question this is a very good question it's basically all to do with gravity. If you imagine, basically gravity means that all objects, anything with mass, attracts everything else with mass. So if you've got a load of lumps which are going to make up your planet, they're all attracting each other. And they're all trying to get as close to each other as they possibly can, as close to as many other massive things as they can. Mm-hmm. If you imagine a planet which started off kind of like a big, long, thin, dumbbell-shaped object mm-hmm. then the, the, the it can actually get close the objects inside it can get closer to each other by kind of squidging and getting a bit less dumbbell shaped and getting a bit less dumbbell shaped and bit getting a bit less dumbbell shaped until eventually you get to a sphere because that's the, basically the shape where everything inside it is as close as you can possibly get to everything else inside it um, any kind of projections above that things can get closer to everything else by f- falling down by coming close coming closer to a sphere again Hmm. the earth isn't quite a sphere because it's spinning so centrifugal force is kind of throwing out the center a little bit um so it's sort of like a flattened slightly flattened sphere but it is very very close to one yeah i think yeah it's would is far far smoother than a if you actually kind of scaled it down to the size of a bowling ball it would actually be far smoother far smoother than a, a bowling ball or a snooker ball they're all out there Nice and round. Um, Ralph in Stamford has called in to say, how is it possible for there to be a volcano under the sea? Very good question. Because surely water would put out the fire. And uh, I know, I think it was last week we were talking about, you know, that how, how do we know that the centre of the earth is so hot? So uh, good yeah. question, Ralph. How is it possible for there to be a volcano under the sea? As surely water would put out a fire. Dave? Yeah, water does put out a fire, and it will cool down lava coming out of a volcano much quicker than air does. Basically, a volcano occurs when you've got a load of molten rock underground, which is under pressure. It's um, Mostly it's under pressure because it's slightly less dense than the rock around it. It's trying to float upwards, and if you've got lots and lots of molten rock underneath it, the force pushing upwards can get so great that it can split open the rock above it, and then it can sort of ooze out a bit like toothpaste out of a tube. And so it's not actually on fire. It's not burning at all. Um, it's hot. It, the stuff, the lava coming out of a volcano is hot just because it was hot before. And some volcanoes can be very, very hot. Um, a lot of the, in fact, most of the volcanoes which occur under the sea, um, the lava is coming out at about thirteen or fourteen hundred degrees centigrade. 
So basically you've got incredibly hot rock under huge pressure. Now, if that rock comes out on the land, especially it tends to be, if, um, if you've seen any pictures of volcanoes in Hawaii, they're re- it's really, really, lo- really hot, runny lava. Yes. It kind of run, kind of gups up to the surface, and then it takes ages, hours, days, months to cool down. So it will kind of run down the sides of the um, volcano. It'll still stay liquid for definitely a few days, a couple of days. So you have big vats of molten lava and big um, in um, craters which stay there, bubbling away, and then it, it have a big eruption it will sort of run down the side of volcanoes for miles um a volcano in the sea is very different from that um in fact it, because it's being cooled so quickly from the water it tends to kind of come out in little kind of um squidges it's sort of like little earthquake it is very very like toothpaste getting squidged out of a tube and you get like sort of little things which look like pillows like rock pillows they sort of squidge out of the you get squidging out a little gap in the in in the rock, which um, the lava squidges out. It cools very quickly, so it kind of gets extruded out into a kind of rounded pillow shape, and that bit sets. And then the pressure builds up again, and it squidges out somewhere else, and you get another rounded pillow shape, kind of being extruded, squidged, extruded out. It builds up thousands, millions of these pillow shapes. Right, yeah. Actually called pillow lavas. Mm. Um, very imaginative geologists when yes. they come up with their names. Um, and so it does affect how a volcano erupts very seriously. And so the, the lava doesn't go running around the place because it's been cooled so quickly by, mm. because there's a lot water's basically much more dense than air. And as it comes out, you get lots of water boiling around it and it's quite impressive. Pe- people have gone down there with um, cameras and taken some lovely video of it. Mm. Um, is it on YouTube? <laughs> I'm sure it is on YouTube. I haven't looked myself. <laughs> But yeah, um, it does ha- have a big effect, and it does put essentially it does cool the lava down much quicker than mm. it would do on land. But it's not it's not enough to keep it to cool it quick enough to stop it getting out. So it is possible. A text um, from Kay who says um, the speed of light, three hundred thousand kps. Creationists believe the universe is six thousand years old. What speed would it have to expand at to get? to its present size. Oh, Dave, I can see your wheels whirring already. Yeah, I mean, the universe is expanding very quickly. It would have to be um, to expand from a point to the visible universe that we can see now, which is about 14 billion light years across. Um, In order to do that in about 6,000 years, you'd have to be um, expanding at maybe two or three million times the speed of light, which wouldn't be possible. Mm. All right, interesting stuff. Um, Mike in Colchester very quickly says, does gravity gradually draw the moon towards the Earth, resulting in a collision of catastrophic proportions? The moon is always being pulled towards the Earth, but the moon is moving fast enough that it always misses. This is what's called an orbit. Um, the moon is always accelerating; it's always falling towards the Earth. But by the time it would have fallen and hit the Earth, it's actually kind of it's because mo- it's moving so fast. It's sort of actually just moved out of the way, and it keeps every time and it keeps missing. And in fact, it's missing so perfectly; it's always going around a circular orbit. In fact, the moon is moving away from the Earth um, because of the tides on the Earth, because the Earth is spinning faster than the moon. Right. Um, the moon has. Uh, creates tides on the earth of, yeah. of the water it pulls the water towards it uh-huh. and then the earth is spinning spinning underneath these tides and dragging these tides around with it and that actually applies a force to the moon which speed, tries to speed up the moon that gives it more energy and actually increases the size of its orbit um, in fact it's not so much that the moon will eventually um, result in a ca- catastrophic collision as you're mentioning mm-hmm. it's actually created by one 
because the present theory about how the moon was created is that something about the size of Mars collided with something about um, the proto-Earth, which was significantly lighter than it is now, slightly off-centre. So it smashed into each other, and then it's just off-centre, and they sort of span incredibly fast. This collision hurled lots of molten rock droplets out into orbit around the, this new planet which had formed. Um, and then that slowly coalesced to form the moon. And this is the reason why the moon is made up of very low-density rocks, very like the continents on the Earth, whereas the Earth is much more dense than other, certainly more dense than other um, similar planets um, in the solar system. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 